This is the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Trevor and chortling in his joy, Paul. Paul, how are you doing? I am doing great. I am chortling indeed. Very happy um, to, to be here with you. I see. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. No, it's it's going great. Um, our last episode was so much fun. I'm looking forward to today, and we've received so much fun feedback and and you know positive messages from everybody that um, yeah, it's just been a really fun period. And throw in the holidays, chortling away over here. Nice, nice, nice. We're recording this before Christmas, but this will come out in between Christmas and New Year's. Mm-hmm. So I, I hope you've had a Merry Christmas. I hope you're going to have one, you know, at this point. Yeah. That, that when this comes out, we're, we're just enjoying that that time, reading some books, resting, having having a good time with family and friends, and, you know, hopefully having some of the worries uh, slip away for a little bit, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm picturing us both in a giant pile of books, kind of like smog, the dragon on the Hobbit, you know, just our post holiday. <laughs> right. I'm sure that's how it'll be. Oh, well, we are so excited to be back. As Paul said, we, we had a lot of fun with our last episode and I'm going to have fun with this one too. We're going to be doing our best books of 2023 countdown, continuing on from part one. But today is our five through one, and yes. as with last time, we have not we have not previewed this with either with each other. I don't know what Paul's top five books are, and he doesn't know what mine are. So we'll we'll see how that goes. But before we get to it, we do have one bit of housekeeping, kind of an end of the year, you know, post Christmas gift for one of our lucky listeners of our Dalkey Archive episode. Our um, we did a giveaway of uh, a kind of a handful of Dalkey books that we'll work with this uh, listener, whoever that person may be, to uh, get them uh, some Dalkey books. So, Paul, are you you're good to go? I'm ready. I'm excited to see who wins. All right. Random number generator. I plugged all the entries. And thank you, everybody, for the entries. Uh, many of you did say um, fun things about Dalkey Archive. There were plenty of people who didn't. Uh, know what the Dalkey Archive was yet until our episode. And that's always fun that they yeah. are excited to discover a new publisher to them. Um, and uh, there are several who do know what the Dalkey Archive is. And it looks like the winner this time is Cody Baird. Cody, congratulations. I'm going to quickly go through my, my entries here and see what Cody had to say in his entry. Um, like I said, a lot of people did put in, you know, something about their experience with the Dalkey archive. So here's what Cody had to say. Hi, Mooks and the Gripes podcast. Hello, Cody. Congratulations again. Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> Sending a quick thank you on the recent Dalkey archive press episode and giveaway. I'm not sure what the first Dalkey title I read was, but I've always appreciated the eccentricity of Dalkey's catalog from across the globe. I too loved Guts and Meyer. My first Yon Fasse title before Septology, before the Nobel, was Alice at the Fire. The most challenging reading experience I've had over the last couple of years was Jack Cox's Dodge Rose. Whether or not it was the time I was reading it in the first quarter of 2021 or the book itself, few works are as destabilizing as Cox's with its tumbling prose. In my limited reading experience, few POV shifts are as reorienting as Dodge Rose. 
I don't know that one. I've I don't either. One, but it, so. Yeah, it sounds like it's right <laughs> up our alley, though. I was scratching my head shamefully on the lack of women authors I've read from Dalkey catalog, Dalkey's catalog. They've published one of my favorite translators, Dahlia Bellu. I've read, I have read some of her work, but I think it was from a different press, uh, not Dalkey's. Um, and I have a copy of Ricky de Cornet's uh, The Fountains of Neptune. I need to read sooner than later. But the truth is I've read more of Dalkey's male than female authors. Um, I'm stoked for the Essentials line. Victor Shlovsky's Zoo or Letters Not About Love looks awesome. Aidan Higgins' Langrish Go Down has been hard to track down. And Chad Post's Mining the Dalkey Archive post on uh, Lewis Paul Boone is yet another essential authors I had never heard of before. Oh, and here, this should be kind of funny. Uh, let's see here. It says, if you share this with Chad Post and or Will Evans, give my apologies. Uh, I previously wrote in an in I previously wrote in after the open letter press giveaway and Dalkey's another ga- gateway for me into independent publishing. I was so appreciative of Dalkey open letter that I wrote Chad Post an email to his university email saying thank you, which probably came off like unrestrained fanboying. <laughs> <laughs> I know that feeling. No worries. <laughs> As always, thank you for the podcast. It's a great listen. I hope you have a nice and safe holidays. Well, thanks, Cody. We'll be in touch so that we can arrange to get you uh, these books. Um, it, it again, it is it is fun to get people who have never heard of the Dalkey Archive, and it's also fun to to get someone who has heard of them and is already a fan. Um, and I will just just say because we're not going to have time to go through all the entries we got. It does seem like a lot of people um, have read Flan O'Brien. And mm-hmm. in particular, the third policeman, um, and I, I just haven't read the his books yet. Yeah, but, you know, after your comments on on his work and all these entries that you know, that's kind of what they know from the Dalkey archive. I thought, man, I, I'm out of it. <laughs> no, as always, there's it's impossible to keep up with everything, but I definitely think based on that swim two birds, when I read that, I think you would really enjoy it. I have the third policeman, but I have not read that one, but I noticed the same thing. <laughs> that does seem to be one of the more popular titles. Mm-hmm. And it was also interesting. We weren't the only ones who seemed like they felt a little bad about not reading quite as many female authors from the Dalkey archive. And I don't know if that's just, you know, a lot of the books that tend to pop out from them have happened to be from male authors, or if it's just one of those blind spots that just happened to come along, but it's definitely something I look forward to kind of exploring a lot of their other works and Quinn and and many others were listed. So um, something that'll be a fun thing to remedy. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. Well, for the, the main topic, Paul, why don't you take it away and give us your number All right, here we go. My number five will surprise probably absolutely no one. It is Roman Stories by Jhumpa Lahiri. Um, As I said before, I was so thrilled to hear that Lahiri was publishing her first collection of stories in English for something around 15 years. And I was happy to find that despite the many years in between and the fact that she originally wrote these in Italian and then translated them with a little bit of help from another translator, that they were well worth the wait. Um, You know, it's always so nice when you return to a favorite author um, and then you find some themes and some topics and some various parts of the books that kind of resonate and remind you of their previous work um, and kind of why you came to love them in the first place. But 
As we've said about Lahiri before, another thing that I really respect about her is her courage and her curiosity. She continues to kind of experiment and branch out and try new things, which is fun too. And I thought this collection was just a perfect blend of both of those things. There's some very familiar themes from Lahiri's work, you know, relocation and alienation and loneliness. But then, like I said, she continues to also explore boundaries and form and try new things. Um, So I saw an interview where she said that this title is actually borrowed from an Italian writer named Alberto Moravia. He wrote two volumes of what he called Raconte Romani, which is Roman stories, which I hadn't realized. So I like that she continues to kind of investigate Italy from different you know, perspectives, the literature and the history. But the thing about this book is also, despite that, it feels really modern in a lot of ways. And it focuses on a lot of current day issues like immigration in Italy and some of the tensions that it's created. Um, so, you know, as I was reading the book, I didn't notice this, but looking back, I realized one of the interesting things about this collection is none of the characters actually have names. So instead we're introduced to them as something like the woman in mourning or the professor, for example. Um, and then even though we can kind of infer that the stories are set in and around Rome, obviously from the title and some of the other, you know, b- bits of setting, she doesn't actually really specify any place names either. And I thought that was a really interesting way to kind of add to the feeling of dislocation and otherness that so many of her characters, you know, share. So um, in her previous work, she generally focuses on people of Indian descent. And this book also kind of avoids specifics about people's backgrounds or nationalities, which was different than her other books. But again, it does focus on immigrants and refugees and other newcomers who are trying to integrate into the new society, as well as those who are playing a part in excluding them either purposefully or, or inadvertently. So the opening story, The Boundary, is a really good example of that. Um, it's narrated by the daughter of a family who are caretakers of a house in the countryside. And so we spend time with her as this other family comes to, to visit and stay in their house. And we get it through her perspective, which is really interesting. Um, and as always, Lahiri does a really masterful job of kind of just showing the, the tensions and the different ways that things pop up in a relationship. So I'm just going to read a real short excerpt here. And this is from her perspective. Um, it says, after just a few hours, it's as if they'd always lived here. The things they've brought for a week in the country are scattered all over the place. Books, magazines, a laptop computer, dolls, hoodies, colored pencils, pads of paper, flip-flops, sunscreen. At lunch, I hear forks striking plates. I notice each time one of them sets down a glass on the table. I detect the calm thread of their conversation, the sound and smell of the coffee pot smoke from a cigarette. After lunch, the father asks one of the girls to bring him his glasses. For a long time, he studies a road map. He lists small towns to visit nearby archaeological sites, ruins. The mother isn't interested. She says this is her only week of the year without appointments and obligations. Later on, the father heads off to the sea with his daughters. He asks me as they're leaving how long it takes to get there, which of the beaches is nicest. He asks me about the weather, forecast for the week, and I tell him there's a heat wave coming. The mother stays home. She puts on her bathing suit anyway to get some sun. And then I'll skip a little bit ahead and it says, now and then she lifts her head and looks intently at the landscape that surrounds us. She stares at the various greens of the lawn, the hills, the woods in the distance, the glaring blue of the sky, the yellow hay, the bleached fence, and the low stone wall that marks the property line. She looks at all the things I look at every day, but I wonder what else she sees in them. And I thought that was just a beautiful little connection. This is a person who lives there and is very familiar, and she's, you know, in this kind of strange situation where she is watching other people kind of come and view her country in certain ways. You know, it's what a lot of people who live in a touristy environment probably deal with. So 
Um, you know, that's just one example. There's another story that's like six connected stories called The Steps that I thought was really fascinating that focuses on a bunch of different people who day in and day out walk up and down this flight of 126 stone steps. And so we get these little snippets into their lives. Um, so like, like I said, she just continues to try new things while also retreading some old ground that I, I find fascinating. So um, I don't know, I could go on and on about her and I always do, but I, I just think she is so consistently excellent that it's easy to take her for granted. But I was just so happy that this new collection was exactly what I would have hoped it would be in. Anybody who hasn't mm-hmm. yet, I would highly recommend it. So that's my number five book of the year. Well, it might would have been on my list, but I actually haven't finished it yet. I haven't read all the stories. Oh, yeah. And I think as I'm sitting here, if I'm being honest, I figured it'd be on your list, so I didn't feel the pressure <laughs> to finish it. Probably a safe bet, yeah. But I also probably like changed that to be like, well, I don't want to finish it because it probably will it might kick out a book on my list and mm. I've already made my list. So I, right. <laughs> I was like, Paul, Paul's got it. I'll, yeah. I'll, 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 ca- I'll catch up with it. I, I'm actually looking forward to finishing it over the holidays. And speaking of not finishing a collection of short stories, I also have not finished Stephen Milhauser's, mm. um, you know, the, which, which I'm very much enjoying both of those short story collections. Um, but I haven't finished either of them. So they're not on my list. No, that's probably probably could be, you know, I think they both probably, yeah, they deserve an honorable mention from you. And I think it's a pretty smart strategy actually to save a couple of story collections over the holidays because I've found they're perfect to kind of slip in between, you know, when you get a a minute here and there to read. So that's sounds like you have some good reading ahead of you. Well, and it's interesting because when I think of Stephen Milhauser's collections of short stories, I feel like oftentimes I am reading them over the holidays. There have been a few Christmas Eves where I stay up late. List, uh, reading a Stephen Milhauser story, Ooh. and so I, you know, I, I think that'll that'll suit the suit the time, even though they're probably not that Christmassy in other ways. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I like that. Uh, all right. well, what's your number five book for the year? It's my number five book. Isn't a cheat, Paul. It might sound like it for a moment. Okay, but, I hear a little but... hedging, but I'll go with it. <laughs> I read all four of the Thursday Murder Club books this year by Richard mm. Osman. All four of them. I loved each of them, but if I'm if I'm looking at my absolute favorite of them and the one that made this list, it's the one that just came out very recently, "The Last Devil to Die." Okay, I love these books. They they are fun. They're funny. They're they're mysteries. You know, they they just kind of have a lot of uh, elements that I think might some people might think they're relatively light. But the last devil to die in particular, Paul, it is deep and has some of the most beautiful writing I have ever read about growing old with somebody and realizing that your time together is short. One way or another, it it is short. Uh, It is, it is so good, so touching. um, And it takes place over the holidays. So, here, here, so, so the Thursday Murder Club, for those who don't know, uh, is a group of uh, retirees. They're all in their uh, 70s, I think. I don't know if any of them are in their 60s, but in their, in their 70s, who uh, get together every Thursday night at their retirement community. And their hobby is to go after cold cases. And they... The, 
you know, they, they each have their own personality. And in the first book, they're kind of getting to know each other a little bit, a little bit more prickly maybe with each other, but they become really good friends. Uh, not the least because, you know, they've been through so many various murders together by this point. <laughs> you know, th- these are the kind of people that, you know, just like you don't want to find yourself on vacation with, uh, with uh, Hercule Poirot, and you don't want to ever be neighbors with, uh, you know, like Miss Marple. Right. Uh, or Angela you, Lansbury. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you don't want to be really near these, these people, uh, but they've become very close. And there's the, the one that kind of stops and like is writing in her journal periodically. Her name is Joyce and she is a widow. Uh, she's lost her husband, Jerry, some, sometime in the past, you know, and she's really funny. She is so funny. Just one of the best characters I've ever read, period. Um, I love her. And and she has little observations like, uh, what is it about Christmas? Everything that's wrong seems worse, and everything that's right seems better. Um, but there's also a part in this book where, again, they're talking about loss and about love. And it, it really is beautiful um, and, and uh, heartbreaking at the same time. And Joyce herself is kind of trying to deal with how they may approach other people going through loss and stops and says something to herself. Kind of, she says, they say that time softens the pain, but that's a fairy tale. Who would ever love again? If anyone actually told the truth, I'm afraid there are some days when I could still rip out my own heart and weep myself hollow for Jerry. Some days, every day there's, and that's mm. just a snippet. I mean, th- 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 if I stopped and read the whole passage, like the whole part that I'm thinking of, it would be it would be spoilerific. I mean, this is book four, uh, but uh, it's also really long. But it is it is absolutely um, amazing. So wow. beyond the fun mysteries, beyond the comedy, which they their laugh out loud, um, hilarious. Uh, you know, these characters are so you know uh, fun. The these are well executed in so many other ways also. Um, most of my family has, has been reading them as well. And we all feel similar about these books and about how much we love these characters and um, how touching um, the books can be, uh, you know, about friendship, about people growing old, you know, realizing that they're growing old, but they still got a little bit of it in them and they're feisty, you know, they're, right. they're a lot of fun. So highly recommend them. Um, number five on my list, the last devil to die book four of the Thursday murder club series. You got to read them in order. This is not a series where you can just dip in and out. They, they build on each other very much. So nice. my, my, my brother actually skipped book two unintentionally and just read, cause you know, that sometimes series like this, you don't, you don't actually know the titles of the books, right? Thursday murder club two, you know, I, I actually don't remember which one's which when it comes to two and three and four, I probably wouldn't have other than I had to look it up for this episode. <laughs> so he skipped book two and read book three. And while he had fun with it, he's like, Oh, I, I guess there's some things that have happened to them in between all of this. Cause I didn't know about, you know, so I think some of that probably was a little bit spoiled on him, right? Uh, but read them in order. And uh, I'd recommend reading them soon if you haven't already nice. jumped in. No, I haven't. But I remember you talking about them in the past. And every time I'm like, that's not something that would normally necessarily jump out to me. But every time you describe them, I'm like, I need to make sure I broaden my 
mind and, and try them. So yeah, I'll have to pick up one of those. That sounds like a lot of fun. But what you said this time really appealed to me that it's not just oh yeah, it's, you might it's very it might dark, be. very very bleak. <laughs> yes, you know, yes. winter of the soul kind That's of stuff. Right. Existential okay. dread, Paul. <laughs> soul, I'm soul. No, it's just cool that it's it's a mix. Like some of those series can in my opinion veer off into stuff that i'm not necessarily that interested in but something like that where it provides a balance and maybe some unexpected moments that sounds really appealing so yeah awesome Mm -hmm. well are we ready for my number four all right my number four is solenoid by mercea carterescu translated from the romanian by sean cotter and published by deep vellum so i will continue the theme of a lot of the books that are on my list this year. And a lot of my reading this year was books that were published within the last you know calendar year or so, which is a little bit unusual for me. And this is one of those that came out late in 2022 and immediately jumped to the top of my one, most wanted list. You know, there was just so much hype and people posting pictures and everything. And this is one of those rare times where a book that jumped up to my top of my list, I actually read relatively soon because I read it in May. Um, you know, it's received so many accolades over the last year or so. It was named one of the best books of the year by everyone from The New Yorker to Publishers Weekly, Words Without Borders. And it's also a favorite of lots of smart readers and reviewers who we know, you know, Dustin Illingworth, who called it, quote, an instant classic of literary body horror. And our friend Chris Villa over on Leaf by Leaf, who called it one of the best books I've ever read and also said, I'm inclined to say something crazy like, this is the best 21st century novel I've read so far. And then uh, another friend, Eric Carl Anderson, over on The Lonesome Reader, he posted a video where he was raving about it. And he also wrote, it is one of the most brilliant pieces of fiction I've ever read. So, you know, given that kind of introduction, you might actually be wondering why it's not number one on my list. And I have to admit, there's something about it that I was wondering, like, where I should rank this book. I couldn't quite decide Um, if I'd read it in a different year or even at a different part of this year. I think it very well could have been even higher on my list. But despite being blown away by it overall and absolutely loving, you know, huge parts of this book, I'll admit I also did struggle with it at times more than I expected to. And it took me a while to make my way through parts of it. But despite all that, it made such a huge impression on me um, that I I couldn't not put it on my list. And I think it's fully deserving of all the praise that it receives. Um, So just a quick, you know, setting it's set in Bucharest in the late seventies and early eighties. And it includes some really kind of, unsettling and and interesting descriptions of the city. It's in a state of disrepair and just falling into ruin for big parts of it that kind of reminded me of somebody like Kafka or Borges. Um, And then the narrator himself is a school teacher, kind of a reluctant school teacher, I would say, who's reminiscing about his childhood. He's reflecting on his job. And then he's also talking a lot about his haunting dreams, which is a lot of where that body horror part comes through. Um, So as Dustin mentioned, there's a fair amount of gross and disturbing descriptions of body parts and bodily functions that are kind of a mix of fascinating and sometimes a little bit off-putting as well. Um, And then as the title implies, there's a large part of the book that involves the narrator discovering a series of solenoids, which are these big electromagnets that are hidden around the city. And it's really interesting. Whenever he stumbles onto one of them, it kicks off one of these really incredibly surreal sections of the book that make of big sections of, of the text. So in one section, he discovers a solenoid that's actually near his home. So he ends up floating above his bed while he's sleeping, or he temporarily embodies this tiny little tick or mite that burrows under someone's skin. So it's just these really odd sections that are kind of, like I said, there's a lot of gross stuff in here, but it's just very mesmerizing and strange. So on this one, rather than reading a section of the book, 
I thought I'd instead read the closing paragraphs of Dustin, Dustin Illingsworth's uh, New York Times review, because I thought he just did such a wonderful job of summing up this book. And he says, what is it like to read Solenoid? Narrative gloss does no justice to the novel's strangeness, its sense of otherworldly hazard, its hypnagogic menace and navel-gazing decadence. Scenes of utter banality, the small talk of a teacher's lounge, a walk home from work, alternate with phantasmagoric set pieces. An obsidian statue stomps the profit of an anti-death protest group. A giantess sleeps beneath an abandoned factory. A cryptic automaton lords over a children's sanitarium. Tubes run beneath Bucharest to harvest human pain in a balloon of translucent skin. These extraordinary occurrences are treated as anything but. Nothing in the author's tone suggests we've entered the zone of imagination or fantasy. There is a feeling that anything at all might happen. So I'll leave it there. I just thought that was a wonderful description. He did a far better job of describing it than I ever could, but it is just a weird, big, strange, like beautiful, disgusting novel that, um, like I said, I, I, I couldn't decide. I could have seen it being number one on my list. I could have seen it not even being on my top 10 list at times. It's one of those that just keeps you know, picking at your brain and you can't stop thinking about it. So for that reason, among many others, I thought it would be you know, very deserving of a place on my list. So yeah, it's, it's quite a book. I'll say that. Excellent. I'm, I'm glad to, to, to see it on your list. I, I wondered, um, mm-hmm. I myself have, have still not, um, well, I, I read the first like page, mm-hmm. uh, excitedly and I'm still excited about it, but I was also like, well, I don't know if I'm quite ready for, for this, not, not in like a fearful way, just in a, I knew it would take a lot of dedication and time. Yeah. And, um, I do need to, to build that out though and, and get into it. I, I've been excited about it since, well, it's been years, actually. We started hearing that it existed, mm. and there it is now yeah. <laughs> available. I know. And I've heard several people say that even the people raving about it said it's not even necessarily his best work, which is crazy. I know that a lot of people, his book Blindness, which I own but have not yet read, a lot of people think that one's even better. So I'm excited to someday revisit this one. I'm going to have to take a breather, but also just to continue to explore a lot of his other work. Cause like I said, it's fascinating to hear that some people think that there's even better stuff out there. All right. Well, for my number four, Paul, it is a collection of short stories. Uh, so I, I was thrilled to still have one on my list. Nice. This is Tessa Hadley's after the funeral. I think it's her fourth collection of short stories. Uh, I've been reading her stories for a long time. They're, published in the New Yorker almost almost all the time. You know, you get you get a story every every few months it feels like it's not true, but you know, right. she shows up frequently and I'm always really excited when she does. She is not one of those that I go, "Ugh, I don't care about this. I just, you know, eat these up. I, I love them so much." And this collection is I think her best. I and I've really enjoyed so many of them in the past that would probably also make a, a year-end list for me. But I just really loved going through these. Uh, m- many of them I had read over the last few years as they showed up in the the New Yorker, for example, and including the one that I'm about to read a little excerpt from. But I I thought, you know, w- one of the reasons I've so valued her her stories is they have opened up the world of women to me, women and girls in a way that I've really appreciated that can sound a little bit silly. I, I don't know. It, it's, it's something that I, I want to understand better. And we talked about it a while back, you know, little things that we don't even consider as men, 
but that are daily concerns for women. Uh, it's it's really good to kind of open our eyes. You know, as limited as that opening might be in the end, if, you know, hopefully we're making some progress. But because I am a man and I thought it might be nice to to hear from um, a fellow you know woman uh, how these books uh, strike on that subject, here's a little bit from Kate Kellaway's review that was published in The Guardian in July. Um, she says, But it is about women that these enjoyable stories are most concerned. Hadley acknowledges that, for many women, the difficulties are with one another. She writes intriguingly about mother-daughter relationships, where the mothers seem, unpardonably, younger than their daughters. In My Mother's Wedding, Janie comments, That was the way life was divided up between me and my mother. I knew about things, and she was beautiful. Hadley is also preoccupied with women's independence. Marlene, in After the Funeral, will not marry a doctor who requires her to give up her work, even though her job is in a supermarket. In Dido's Lament, Lynette, her youth behind her, is hanging on to an independence she has arguably outgrown, ashamed not to have become the successful singer she aspires to be. Hadley is fascinated by how tenacious a sense of identity established early on can be. Serena in the Bunty Club, young of youngest of three, is another self-styled free spirit, attempting to be an exception to a sisterly rule, dressed in black, smoking mutinously, not a cool look in middle age. Um, just, yes, you know, <laughs> yeah. the, 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 this world is, is so good. But she's just a great writer. You know, the way she builds her stories from the ground up, introducing us to a character in moments with very clear, crisp sentences and such. Um, she doesn't have the same style as Lahiri, but I would say that ability to really just capture you from the get-go yeah. and escort you through all of this is fantastic. So here's here's a little Christmassy part from nice. the beginning of Dido's Lament that uh, we just read a little bit about. Lynette was in Oxford Street which was a stupid place to be at any time, and especially at five o'clock on a winter's afternoon. It was her own fault. She'd gone into John Lewis after work for a few things she needed, and then she'd tried on some clothes, which she hadn't meant to do, and now she was stuck in a crowd of other shoppers and workers, fuming inwardly and shuffling in half-steps, funneling into the entrance to the underground. Everybody was hunched, shapeless in down coats, hooded, Sleety, frozen rain was blowing in their faces. No one looked up at the Christmas lights. Someone at work had said that one of the shops was pumping out artificial snow into the street, which made the idea of even real snow somehow disgusting. Uh, just, I'll, I'll stop there. That's not even the end of that first paragraph. It just, she just kind of keeps going on. Yeah. Um, but again, just really great insights, really great little moments. And um, another little little quote that I think encapsulates some of the feel sometimes. Uh, this is from another story, but it says, something's not quite right, though never visibly wrong. The disaster is sensed, if never quite consummated. Mm. Just wonderful stuff. And um I mean, I'm sitting here reading it, and I and I was reviewing some of the pieces for this, and I thought I might I might have to read these again even before I finish, uh, you know, Milhauser and Lahiri. They're so good. <laughs> yeah, wow, those are really good. I know we had a conversation about her a, a little while back, and I was kind of surprised 
that I didn't realize that she was more well-known for her short stories because I have only had exposure to her through her novels, which are also brilliant and I love. So I'm it glad for this. It could be me. You know, it could be that that's how I know her and I've been yelling in your ear for so long. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know, but either way, like we've said, any author who can kind of bridge that gap between different forms, I mean, Lahiri is a perfect example who can do it, both of them well, that blows my mind. Um, so yeah, I just added that one to my list. I'm going to try to get to that over the holiday break um, because like we were just saying, it's so nice to have a collection of short stories. So uh, those sound really good. And like you said, I can vouch for her as, as a writer. She's absolutely amazing. And I really loved what you said about gaining exposure to the, you know, some to some degree to the interiority of a, of a woman's life and, and some of the different things that come up day to day that, like you said, we just don't necessarily think about. Because um, I do think that's one of the great values of literature that we've talked about is just being able mm-hmm. to, at least to some degree, get a little bit of a, a view behind somebody else's eyes for a little while. So that really appeals to me too. All right. There's our five and four. And just like last week, we are now going to sit back for a moment to get some insights from other listeners, other friends. Uh, a couple of ones that we will read. And then uh, we were kind of got uh, not overloaded. That sounds negative, but uh, a, an abundance, you yeah. know, a bounty. Is that a better word? A bounty like of, uh, of audio submissions from listeners. So let's go ahead and get started on some of those. All right. So first of all, we're going to hear from our friend Merve Emre, who joined us uh, earlier this year for a wonderful discussion about Natalia Ginsburg's book, The Dry Heart. And Merve says, I have been working on an introduction to a new edition of Juna Barnes' short stories, which are astonishing and disturbing. Barnes is repetitive, obsessive even. Her themes are love and death, especially in Paris and New York, the corruption of nature by culture, the tainted innocence of children, and the mute misery of beasts. In nearly every other story, one encounters a man or a woman who has gone down on all fours, mad with lust or torment. In Spillway, perhaps Barnes's best-known story, the tubercular Mrs. Julie Anspatcher attempts to explain the nature of this suffering to her coldly disapproving husband. It's suffering without a consummation. It's like insufficient sleep. It's like anything that is without proportion. Yet her suffering fills her with hysterical joy, an ecstasy that comes from having become alien to life. This is the essential tension of Juna Barnes's fiction. Her characters may be alien to life, half dead with agony, but they are alive, spectacularly, grotesquely alive. So, wow, thank you, Merve. I was talking to her a little bit. I have not read any Juna Barnes. I, I own, haven't either. I own Nightwood, and she said that she spoke very highly of that book and told me I should jump in. So I told her I'd have to add that one to my 2024 plans, but what a great description of her works. Yeah, Kevin oh. from Canada read Nightwood and recommended it to me you know, 15 years ago. So I'm, I'm almost to read it. I, 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 you know, was planning on right now. <laughs> yeah, I know. Seriously. <laughs> All right. Yeah. And thank you so much, Merve. And uh, again, it was so fun to have her and Kim on for that episode. If you haven't read uh, Natalia Ginsburg or the dry heart in particular, you should, and you should go and listen to that episode. <laughs> oh, for sure. That was a great discussion. All right, our next friend is Sean the Book Maniac. Uh, we've both had a, a good opportunity to join him on his YouTube channel. I'm actually going to be doing that again over the holidays. Oh, know, nice. nice little treat. So I'm looking forward to that. But 
here goes Sean. I'm in a, I'm, I, he, he talked to me a little bit about this book. I think he talked with you a little bit about it as well. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to get to it as I can say after, you know, darn near every book that we're going to hear <laughs> exactly. about, but boy, that, you know, this one, he, he sold it definitely to me and I think he'll sell it to all of our listeners. So thanks, Sean. We'll hear from you now. This is Sean, the book maniac, and I'm here to tell you about my book of the year, a novel translated from the Swedish the English translation came out in January of 2023 called Collected Works by Lydia Sandgren. And the translator is Agnes Brume. Oh my God, I love this book. To me, this is a book that needs to be read slowly. That's certainly the way I read it. This is a novel that's as much about how people pass time and how people put off realizing their dreams as it is about the mystery at the heart of the story. The mystery is about the young mother, Cecilia, who after her second child is basically weaned at the breast, she dedicates herself to finishing up her PhD thesis and then walks out of her family's life with a mysterious note and they never see her again. The present of the story is 15 years later. Her husband, Martin, is a writer and publisher. Her children are young adults. This is a novel that is jam-packed with artsy-fartsy cultural references, most of them very specific to Sweden. If if you're not familiar with Swedish culture, I certainly wasn't. And you're not the kind of reader that enjoys Google reading, looking stuff up as you go along. This may not be a book for you, but I found that a richly rewarding adjacent process. This is a richly character-driven novel where two of the three characters at the heart of it are what Julia Cameron in The Artist's Way called Artists Monte, stifled self-repressed artists, artists who don't realize their vision. One of the three, you have to read the book to find out, is an incredibly successful artist. And it's about the coming-of-age story of those three characters. And as much as it's about that, it's about how these three characters, in fact, all the characters in the novel, stumble and fumble and radiate their way to the quotidian. It's one of the best novels I've ever read. I recommend it very, very highly. All right. Thanks, Sean. And Paul, have you, do you, I, I don't have that one yet, but it's definitely on my, you know, to buy soon list. You know, I don't yeah. have a long list of those books. And this one's one that, you know, if Barnes and Noble does their special, you know, sales over the holiday season. I, I may jump in there for this particular one. That's a great idea. They do that 50% hardback sale, at least they have in previous years. And I wonder if that one might be one that you could snatch up. No, I have yeah. not. I don't own it and I am not actually familiar, but his um, description, like you said, really sold me on it. So I'm, it's on my list, high on my list now. <laughs> All right. We've got another audio submission uh, from Jackie. Uh, J- Jackie joined us for our, our episode on hotel novels, which was her idea and a wonderful episode that was. And we're, you know, of course, making plans to have Jackie back on sooner than later. Hint, hint, wink, wink, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Uh, We'll let her take it away now. Hi, Trevor and Paul. It's Jackie Wine here. Thank you so much for asking me to share my book of the year. I loved hearing everyone's choices last year, so it's great to be part of the discussion again this year. So for my book of the year, I've chosen Forbidden Notebook by the Cuban-Italian writer Alba de Cespedes. This novel was first published in Italy in 1952, but it only appeared in English this year, beautifully translated by Anne Goldstein, who many readers will know from her translations of Eleanor Ferrante's work. 
The UK publisher is Pushkin Press, and I think it's in print with Astra House in the US. So how best to describe Forbidden Notebook? Well, I guess we could say that it's a candid, exquisitely written confessional from an evocative feminist voice. The novel is narrated by a 43-year-old married woman called Valeria, living and working in Rome in the early 1950s. And one Sunday morning, she experiences an irresistible urge to purchase a black notebook while buying cigarettes for her husband, Michelle. And although the tobacconist isn't permitted to sell stationery on a Sunday, he does so in response to Valeria's pleas. And this small act of rebellion sets the novel's subversive tone from the opening scene. So over the next six months, Valeria documents her inner thoughts in this secret notebook, laying bare the nature of her world with all its preoccupations. So the act of writing becomes uh, a confessional of sorts, an outlet for her frustrations with the family, largely with her husband, Michelle, a somewhat remote but dedicated man who is wrapped up in his own interests, which Valeria doesn't share. And then also her two grown-up children, Ricardo and Morella, both of whom live at home. And as these diary entries build up, we see how Valeria has been defined and subsumed by the roles assigned to her, those of wife and mother. Nevertheless, the very act of keeping this notebook leads to a gradual reawakening of her own identity and desires, largely as she finds her voice, challenging the founding principles of her life with Michelle. However, she's also consumed by a guilt, torn between a compulsion to capture her deepest desires in the notebook and also a fear of undermining everything she has built up with Michelle and the children over the past 20 years. I found this exploration of a woman's right to her own existence in the face of competing demands so illuminating and I think it's a fascinating insight into women's lives in post-war Italian society, particularly as the gender roles of the past were being challenged by the desires for freedom and maternity. And one of the most compelling aspects of the novel is just how candid and honest it feels, especially for a book first published in the early 1950s. It really is a remarkable rediscovered gem of Italian literature, and I can't wait to read more of this writer's work in the future. All right, another one that I have heard quite a bit about over the past year or so, but I also haven't read it yet. I know. Same here. I, that's one of the things I really loved about a lot of our entries this this year. People sending in their favorite books is they were ones that were on my radar, but weren't necessarily ones that I have. So this is going to be dangerous. <laughs> oh, yes. Very, very dangerous. Uh, well, then let's just keep on keep on going. Another dangerous one. And this one is is an author that I have started to pick up books from, but I still haven't read them yet uh, <laughs> as recommended by our good friend, Patrick Preciosi. Uh, I, I don't know if Patrick, if fo- folks know what Patrick does, but he's, you know, engaged with McNally editions. So yeah. we've been praising them. We'll continue to praise them um, because I, I know, you know, we know what books are coming out their way and I just can't mm-hmm. imagine they're going to be uh, flops or anything like that. They look absolutely amazing. What's still on, on the docket. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Patrick, thanks for your entry. And uh, you know, Put us into more debt, please. Yeah, please. (laughs) Hi, Trevor and Paul. Thanks for inviting me to share my favorite book that I read this year. 
I chose two titles actually, and I'd like to say that they're tied. I think I couldn't decide between the two because they both defined the year for me. They defined my reading. They defined my reading of fiction, also my reading of history, poetry, even philosophy. Uh, those two novels are Cesare Pavese's The House on the Hill, translated by R.W. Flint, which can be found in NYRB Classics, The Selected Works of Cesare Pavese. And the other one is Conversations in Sicily by Elio Vittorini, translated by Alain Sterno Mason. Uh, these are two Italian novels by two friends and peers of a movement that also includes Natalia Ginsburg, uh, Beppe Fenoglio, and even Italo Calvino at one point. Uh, the two of them don't get as much shine as Ginsburg and Calvino do these days, so any chance that I can get to shout the two of them out, I am going to take it. Thanks, guys. All right, Paul, should we do one more audio submission? between this batch let's do one more all right this one will be from our friend Lori feathers um why don't you you know you've you've been well she joined us on a book prizes episode a while back but you've been working more with her if you want to talk a little bit more i I think we we've introduced her to listeners in the Mm -hmm. past and what she does but let's give a refresher yeah so Lori, yeah i've been lucky enough to get to know her much better this year like you said working with um, she invited me to be a judge for the Republic of Consciousness Prize for North America, like we've talked about. And yeah, it's just been wonderful to get to know her. She's a, a bookseller and she's a podcaster and she's just an all around book lover who does so much to champion literature in general, but specifically small presses, which is one of the main focuses of the Republic of Consciousness Prize. So yeah, it's been just so much fun to get to know her. And over the next few months, um, we're going to be working even more closely together because it's getting close to to long list time. And after that will come the winter. So lots of fun ahead. But yeah, her, her uh, choice is another one that this is the theme. It's one that I had not heard about. But after hearing her description, it's like, oh, geez, got to add that one to the list too. So I'll turn it over to you, Lori. Hi, Trevor. Hi, Paul. Thank you for inviting me to share one of my favorite books of 2023. The book is Nonfiction by Julie Meyerson, soon to be published by Tin House Books. I read this novel in 2023, and it will be published on January 2nd, 2024. So I hope you don't mind this little cheat of mine in... um, giving it to you as one of my favorites of the year, even though it's not going to be published until two days after the new year. Contrary to its title, nonfiction is a novel narrated by a woman who, along with her husband, is witness to their teenage daughter as she succumbs to heroin addiction and its attendant anger, violence, and deceit distorting their once happy child into someone alien and unknowable. The book is a riveting depiction of a middle-aged woman internalizing the disintegration of her daughter, her marriage, and her vital sense of self as a mother, wife, and writer. The ugliness, fear, guilt, and shame that their daughter's addiction imposes on the couple, both within their marriage and among their circle, is raw, and palpable in Julie Meyerson's emotionally resonant prose. As the narrator examines her own past and the relationships that formed her, she also questions what it means for her to be a writer 
and what her work represents. Nonfiction provokes the spaces between lived experience and storytelling in all forms of writing, fiction and nonfiction. And it is the most powerful book that I've read this year, an absolutely stellar achievement. Happy holidays, guys. All right. Thanks, Lori. So we can't get that one quite yet. It comes out next week. That's right. <laughs> Everyone can start their year with that one. All right. And, and we'll do one more that we, we will read. Um, this is from our good friend Stu, uh, or Winston's dad on, on Twitter. And uh, I'm, I'm always happy to hear from Stu. He does so much for translated literature, his uh, Translation Thursday prompt, his, you know, just over the last... Oh boy, you know this number gets bigger. But you know, fifteen, <laughs> right. sixteen years that I've known him from from Twitter, it's always nice to hear from him. So he says, "Hi, Paul and Trevor. I return with my books of the year for 2023. I chose three books I don't think you have mentioned and will be in my top ten books of the year. Firstly, we have Wound by Oksana Vasiakina." In this one, a daughter has to take her mother's ashes to Siberia, and as she does, she reflects on her relationship with her mother and her own relationships. One of the first openly lesbian novels published in Russia is a powerful reflection on family and love. Uh, Then we have a prize-winning novel from Senegal, The Most Secret Memory of Men by Mohamed Mbogar Sar, which sees a young writer working on a lost African novel from 1938 that had been withdrawn due to a claim of plagiarism. He then sets off to find out more about this writer. This is loosely based on an actual book from the 50s, and it's a mix of a road trip, uh, being an African writer, and lost dreams. The actual novel it's based on is Bound to Violence by Yamboy Ulologwem, <laughs> and that's to be reissued next year by Penguin in the UK. Uh, Then I take a turn from fiction into poetry in the collection My Rivers by Bosnian poet and novelist Farouk Sehik. His cycle of poems around three rivers and moving beyond the river see him him tackling the war, but also his life moving around Europe after the war, how we move on from war and rebuild. A powerful collection that won one of the biggest poetry prizes in the Balkans. Thanks for letting me share my books of the year again. Well, thank you, Stu. We do want to note uh, the translators of these three books from Stu that that all sound excellent. Um, Wound was translated by Elena Alter, and The Most Secret Memory of Men was translated by Lara Vergno, and My Rivers was translated by S.D. Curtis. So thanks so much for your work, all of you translators, and thank you so much for you know, mentioning these books, he, you know, he's right. They, I've never talked about these before because I've never, never read them. And have, while well, maybe I've seen them mentioned per- probably by him, have never really stopped and uh, dug in. So thanks so much, Stu. Yeah, all three are going straight on my list. And you know that term, sorry, not sorry. With <laughs> this, I feel like we should say thanks, not thanks, because it's like, <laughs> <laughs> I do appreciate it. But boy, they're, they're adding up quickly here at a fast rate. No, I'm just kidding. It's, this is awesome. Those sound amazing. Well, now it's our turn to start piling on, you know, yep. our poor, poor listeners who That's right. hopefully are finding some that they're very excited about that they just won't be able to resist. So yes. what, Something what's tells your me. number three? My number three is The Woman Who Borrowed Memories by Tova Janssen, translated by Thomas Thiel and Sylvester Mazzarella. 
So I mentioned during our last episode that there would be at least one more book from the NYRB Women 23 list popping up on my list, and here it is. So this is one we read fairly recently, but it immediately jumped up very high on my list. I absolutely loved it. Um, I've read and loved quite a few, or not quite a few, but several of Janssen's novels, but I didn't really know what to expect from her stories. I'd never read anything by her, but man, these are amazing. This collection was one of the highlights of my reading year. It's made up of 26 different stories that were gathered from five books published between 1971 and 1998. And the stories, you know, focus on a lot of different characters, but I would say largely focus on dreamers, artists, misanthropes, people who are growing older and kind of living out the latter parts of their lives, and many others who are kind of just outside of society's normal areas of focus, which is something we've talked about that we really appreciate and and enjoy. So in other words, it covers so many of the topics that are just among my favorites. And one of the things that I thought was really amazing about this collection is just her ability to um, capture such a wide range of voices, you know, young and old, male and female, gay and straight couples, and just on and on. And the more I read her work, the more I appreciate her ability to just perfectly capture the psychology of her various characters in just a few pages or even a few lines sometimes, and the various nuances of their relationships. And often with her works, those relationships are very strained, or there are people who are just struggling to connect or understand one another, which is always fascinating. Um, In some of her stories, we do see a disconnect as one person reaches out for help or a connection while, you know, we as the readers realize that their hopes for the other person are just kind of sadly falling on deaf ears. Um, For example, in the story Traveling Light, we spend time with a man who's leaving on a cruise because he wants to, quote, be a person who never takes any interest in anyone. But as we read, we kind of realize he's actually repeatedly drawn to others. And I get the feeling there's a lot of empathy there that he's trying to shield himself away from some of these feelings. And in fact, he feels them incredibly strongly. He says, um, Perhaps for the first time in my life, I effectively managed to shut off that dreadful compassion that has given both myself and those around me such fearful trouble. I use that word deliberately, fearful. Now perhaps you can understand why I started on my journey. Perhaps you have some idea of the depth of my fatigue, of my exhaustion and nausea in the face of this constant need to feel sorry for people. And this book and this story in particular is just filled with some wonderful passages like that that capture... Janssen's sometimes cynical, but also incredibly clear-sighted view of humanity that I really love. So um, read one more excerpt here. It says, and this is from that same story. It's still that same narrator talking. He says, over and above factual catastrophes, miseries of one sort or another seem to repeat themselves with rather monotonous regularity so far as I've noticed. He or she is unfaithful or bored. Someone's no longer enjoying their work. Ambitions or dreams have gone out of shape. Time's rapidly getting shorter. One's family is behaving in an incomprehensible and frightening way. A friendship has been totally poisoned by something trivial. One is frantically busy with inessentials, while what is important and irreparable goes from bad to worse. Duty and blame nibble away at us, and the whole syndrome is vaguely labeled angst, a spiritual malaise one seldom succeeds in defining or even tries to define. I know. One's opportunities for feeling ill at ease in life are countless, and I recognize them. They constantly return each affliction in its own little compartment. I should be familiar with this state of affairs, and by now, I should have found the right answers to this problem, but I haven't. There is no practical answer, is there? So we just listen. And anyway, it seems no one is really interested in practical solutions. They just go on talking. They come back and talk about the same things again and again. They won't let go. And I thought, oh man, that was just such a beautiful encapsulation of, you know, 
the types of things that she covers, you know, this ability to, this inability actually often to kind of connect with others and, and kind of find your way in the world, which I thought was just so beautiful. So this collection covers all kinds of things. We spend a lot of time with diff- different artists, an Edward Gorey kind of character. There's another man who's obsessed with building a dollhouse, which actually kind of reminded me of a Stephen Milhauser story speaking of. Um, so obsession and things like that. But just about, just like in other um, books by her, islands also play a large role, either literal physical islands or people creating an island around themselves and isolating themselves. So, you know, I could have listed quite a few other NYRB women books on my list this year, and many of them were honorable mentions, but I couldn't make a list for 2023 without including this one because it just immediately blew me away. So there's my number three book for the year. Awesome. I love that. I I loved that collection too. It was that just rich, rich. I mean, in all senses of that word, you know, just like dripping of richness too. Oh, it's so good. So good. More short stories as well. That's awesome. I know. I was excited about that too. (laughs) All right. My book three, my third book is, is not a short story. It is a long, long story. In fact, it's only halfway done. Um, This is the story of a life by Konstantin Postovsky, uh, translated by the historian Doug Smith. And this was uh, reissued earlier this year by NYRB Classics. It had come out in the UK from Penguin a, a year or two ago. And John Self had really touted it as one of his books of the year, I believe, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. I certainly know that when I got my hands on it, he said, oh, and his, one of his quotes is on the back of it, um, which is, is always fun. And this is the one where I was talking about the, the end of last uh, week's recording of a book that I sat down and just read one section a day, one little chapter. And it took me from, I don't know, January until April, maybe, um, because it's, it's quite long and it's actually three volumes. So he published his memoirs. This is a, this is a book of memoirs, I guess I should say, (laughs) um, of his life in six volumes. And this is one through three, and I cannot wait for four through six. I just hope that they're, they're being worked on and they will come, uh, you know, someday. I'm sure that I'm sure that's what's going on. I just can't not, you know, believe that. Um, I've not asked because I don't want the answer to be no. <laughs> um, but I'm very excited about uh, about it because I loved this. And the way that I read it, I, I would spend the, the, the day kind of reflecting on the section and the period of history. Um, Postovsky was born in 1892 in Moscow. Um, his family uh, lived in... Uh, Kiev in the you know current you know in the, in Ukraine, um, and that's where a lot of this takes place. But he kind of is going back and forth, um, you know, in Moscow to Moscow and such in his early years. So he's born in 1892. Well, World War One, you know, he's he's just the age, and so a lot of the first book is you know his youth, and then we get into the war, and then we get into the aftermath of the war and the revolution and the Russian civil war. And while there's all of this stuff going on and there's so much, um, activity, there's so much, um, you know, history happening. It's also deeply personal 
there were many times where I was just blown away by how much he made me care about these people. And because, you know, it happens in fiction, but I knew these people were real and I knew his feelings that he's expressing were real. Oh man, they, I, I don't, I don't tear up very often when I'm reading or watching a show, even it just doesn't, you know, it's not one of my natural responses, but that would happen with this book. It is absolutely um, amazing. And so that is my third book of the year. Um, you know, but if we're being honest, it probably could have, all these last ones could probably be somewhat reorganized just depending on the day. Yeah. But, uh, but I hope, I hope people are, are aware of that big thick book and aren't put off by its size and maybe, maybe do it like I did. Another thing that was fun. He, he talks a ton about music and art and artists and paintings and other books and such. And I would um, also enjoy spending time on Google looking at the pictures that he's talking about, you know, Mm-hmm. That are like, oh, that's a, a classic Roman, or not Roman, a, a classic Russian painting that was painted during his lifetime. You know, he's seeing this stuff as it's coming out and is live and and new and how that affects them. It's just so much fun, so much in this, in this uh, book. Nice. That's a great pick. I was hoping that one would make your list because I remember you talking about it. And as is often the case, I picked up a copy based on <laughs> your, uh, your raving about it. So... Yeah, well, that sounds amazing. I might take you up on trying to read it in sections like you did because you sold that that way of doing it so well. I really that appeals to me. So I keep saying something else to do in twenty twenty four. At this rate, I'll have my entire year planned before we're done with this episode. But <laughs> <laughs> that does sound okay, awesome. <laughs> well, we do have well, I, we haven't made this plan yet, but I, I imagine we'll do an episode soon on on maybe some plans or hopes for it. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to take those less as a, oh, you know, today, this very moment, what do I want to read this year? But uh, having a little bit more of a long view, I've, I've learned I've learned a few tricks over the last year or so. I'm excited to talk about that and what we yeah. may be planning for 2024 that isn't just, yes, that too. Yeah. And that, oh, yes. And this, oh, tomorrow I'll start that. And today this, and you know. <laughs> right. Yep. Although that's fun too. But yeah, it no, is. I agree with you. It's, it's nice. There's got to be room for that. A healthy mix of the two, for mm-hmm. sure. I love it. <laughs> All right, Paul, your number two. Not good enough to be your number one. Just oh, no. quite, you know, I want to know what was wrong with this. No, just kidding. That's right. I'm just, just kidding. Uh, like you what? said, it gets tricky within the top 10 and especially the higher up you mm-hmm. get. A lot of them are, are very potentially interchangeable. But yeah, my number two book of the year. This is a book I know you've read, Trevor, because you were kind enough to pass your copy along to me after you finished. And look how much your kindness has paid off. It's number two on my list, The Light Room by Kate Zambrino. Uh, I've talked before about how much I love Zambrino, specifically her book Drifts. And this one ticked a lot of the very same boxes for me. Um, It's a book about motherhood, creativity, art, and the passage of time. It actually, it's funny because I wouldn't connect these two books, but to some degree with Zambrino, I never know. I I take it this is a fairly straight memoir, but with her books, there's always that little bit of like uncertainty. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But to some degree, it's a memoir, maybe completely. And it is another book that talks so much about the same topics that you were just discussing, art, music, and a lot of that. It's another one that's good to have your phone nearby to be, to Google some different things that she's talking about. Um, And yeah, but speaking of motherhood, I was thinking about it over the last few years, some of the most amazing books that I've read have have been about motherhood. I was thinking of drifts, of course, but a ghost in the throat, the long form, Elena knows 
Die My Love and others, including a book that comes up several times during this one, which is Yuko Tsushima's Territory of Light, which was another absolutely wonderful book. Um, so yeah, in this book, Zambrino writes about sheltering in place during the pandemic with her husband, her dog, and her two children. And I have to say, I have not been drawn to pandemic literature over the last few years. I just, that has not appealed to me for the most part. But if anyone could get me to revisit that period of our lives, it's it's Zambrino because she does it so beautifully. Um, she does such a magical job of capturing kind of the strange nature of the passage of time, you know, both in general, but specifically during the pandemic. There's those monotonous times, but then these magical moments that just pop up along the way. And I think she did such a perfect job of capturing both sides of the coin. She's so wonderful at writing about solitude and the inner life of the mind. But in this book, it was interesting because she also focuses a lot on the importance of community, whether that means just her immediate, her immediate family or, for example, some mothers that she meets at the park during the pandemic in some of the open spaces. So here's a section where she's talking about taking her daughter to this forest school, as they call it, in the park, where both the parents and children have a chance to kind of get outside during the height of lockdown. It says, early December, the last forest school for the fall. We dress in wool because of the cold. The park is almost completely deserted. The pair of white swans in the lake next to the boathouse remind me of a box the artist Joseph Cornell made in homage to the ballerina Tamara Tumavona performing in a production of Swan Lake, the blue glass creating a twilight sensation against a forest scene of trees and houses. Here too in the forest, the winter light is bare and still. After coming through the tunnel, my daughter shouting, Echo, Echo, while careening past on her scooter, we stop and watch male cardinals in the underbrush, flickers of red. I take a video of my daughter rolling down the hill over and over, along with her friends, her body covered in brown, crumbling leaves. It feels like being in another time. I wonder if I'm watching myself as a child brushing brown leaves off my own corduroy pants. I feel so full here, suffused with the circular feeling of the seasons, thinking of the brown leaves of Edel Adnan's fall calendar painting. The only certainty, at least for now, is the changing of the seasons. So, oh, when I read stuff like that from her, I just, she is just magic. I think she can capture the inner life, like I said, but also just the passage of time, the, the changing of the seasons and how it impacts you, reflecting on your own childhood as you're watching your children and just all these things that she does in one relatively short paragraph. But then on top of that, she has this wonderful ability to capture kind of the solace of art and the life of the mind, even during those stolen moments of, of life and especially parenthood. You and I have talked about how we can't always have those perfect moments to read, but sometimes it's just reading a page or a paragraph, you know, especially when your kids are younger and, and she is dealing with that. So I'm just going to read one more pas passage here if you'll uh, bear with me because I just think it's so beautiful. It's her, she's nursing her, her young child. She has another toddler. So she's just finding one of those stolen moments. And it says, in early December, in the middle of the night, with a book light slung around my neck, I read Yuko Tsushima's eye novel, Territory of Light, a narrative of a single mother raising her child in 1970s Japan. I'm drawn to the pastel shimmery blues and pinks on the cover of the translation. There's a brief period when I'm awake at 4 a.m. or 4.30 a.m. or 5 a.m. every morning, or is it still night, and I move into the other room with the baby, knowing that she needs to nurse letting her father sleep, and I read the novel, feeling ecstatic in those early hours. At some point, however, the accumulation of sleeplessness causes me to hit a wall, and I'm no longer able to read. The exhaustion immobilizes me. Tsushima published the novel in monthly installments in a magazine. It feels like the right time for me to read it now. This work of the vertiginous 
sweetness of early motherhood, of exhaustion and despair and small joys, of lightness and darkness. I'm so drawn to her dreamlike world, which is about stillness and interiority and solitude. I'm interested in how the work organizes and contains the seasons, how we move through time. And that's her talking about a different book, but to me, that description perfectly encapsulates what she does so well too. So oh, yeah, thank you for passing this book along to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I can't speak highly enough of Zambrino. I know that Rebecca Hussey and many other people are huge fans of hers. Um, and oh, she is just quickly rising up the ranks to one of my all-time favorites. Yeah, I loved that one too. The The exhaustion she talks about and the way that it can just kind of wear you down, mm-hmm. even with those you love, it's just so, so well done. I, I loved that one. I, and it's funny because I'm reading um, the second book in the Green Glass House series to my mm-hmm. boys for Christmas this year, like we read the first one last year. This one also takes place at Christmas. But the other thing that I was reading last year um, at this time of year when I was reading that to the boys was Drifts by yeah. Kate Zambrino. Mm-hmm. And so I find myself as I'm reading to them or when I'm done reading, I put it down like in that head, you know, my brain goes to that headspace of, oh, okay, there's the Christmas tree lights. Now you pull out drifts or something by Kate Zambrino. Yeah. I haven't, but uh, <laughs> yeah. it is fun to, to think back because, you know, I, that was my first book by her a year ago. And then I read the light room and yeah, she's, I need to get to know her a lot better. I'm glad that I've gotten to know her as well, you know, through these books as uh, over the last little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, love her so much. All right. You ready for your number two? Yep. My number two is one that I, I, I know you've been working on. I don't know if you finished it yet or not. It is Heather Clark's absolutely astonishing, massive, um, in, in so many ways, biography on Sylvia Plath, Red Comet. Oh, thank uh, you. I was so worried this wouldn't make it on your list. And oh, um, it is amazing. I'm still, I'm at the very end and just savoring oh, it. Yeah, it, it is, it is remarkable. And not just because I'm like, oh, I'm learning so much about Sylvia Plath, but Clark's insights, her marshalling of all of this record into a, a cohesive account of a very complicated, um, and very, uh, you know, problematic is probably the wrong word, but but someone who has a biography that has led to problematic interpretations of her and her work. And I found it so powerful as a book in and of itself, so, you know, enlightening, um, so kind of... Um, uh, it really, it really is one of these books that affected the way that I'm looking at people and things myself. And not, it didn't just teach me a little bit about Sylvia Plath. It helped me learn more about uh, all kinds of things, you know, like the, the, the greatest books can do. And the, the way that it digs into her poetry and um, man, I mean, if, if I, if I, if I liked Sylvia Plath's work before, this made me just love some of these poems. I, I went and bought her, her book, you know, the, the collected poetry of Sylvia Plath. And I, I haven't reread it yet, but I also pulled out, um, you know, the bell jar to reread it soon mm-hmm. because I just thought I, I need to get to know her even better. She, she was um, expressing so much that I find important and still extremely relevant today. And so this, you know, again, just really, really opened up a whole world to me and it was several months. I mean, this thing took me 
three or four months to read as well, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm glad for the big books and glad for the, for the, the persistence that it takes to, to read them. Um, but I kind of knew this one was going to be a, a contender after just her, her prologue, not even, you know, before I'm even to chapter one, I'm sitting there thinking, this is amazing. And it never let up. I mean, this was, uh, probably my favorite biography I've ever read. Not that I read biographies a ton, but uh, man, I loved it. I was about to say the same thing. I have not read very many biographies, but this is by far the best biography I've ever read in my life. I have actually been listening to the audio, which is something crazy. I think it's like maybe literally 48 hours long. Um, And I've been listening to it (laughs) during a lot of winter walks this year. Mm. And it has been one of the best reading experiences of my entire life um, in a lot of ways. So I was debating how to do it. And I was just really hoping I hadn't finished it. So I didn't feel right putting it on my end of the uh-huh. year list. Not that I expect it to, you know, suddenly tank in the last 15% <laughs> or anything, but I was really counting on you. And as we got higher up your list, I was like, Oh no, what if he doesn't put it on there? Cause it's so deserving. It's what you said on top of like her fairness and her immaculate research and her ability to provide perspectives from, you know, Sylvia, of course herself, but like she'll bring in friends she'll really do a good job of focusing on her mother for entire passages. I think mm-hmm. from what I can tell very fairly providing both perspectives, Ted Hughes, you know, even though there's so much controversy oh. and so many strong opinions around him, um, I feel like she does a, a masterful job of like, I'm not saying it has to be both sides, but she does provide a lot of background and nuance to their relationship, to his life, yeah. to her life. And it's just, she's not, she's not trying to rehabilitate him. No. She's trying to deepen our understanding of what's going on, I felt. I didn't feel like she was defending him or trying no. to rehabilitate. Just here's what here's what we have. Here's what we know. Here's how Absolutely. their relationship was at times. So anyway, right. sorry. No, no, you're exactly right. It's it's direct quotes. I mean, the amount of research that she put into this thing from letters and going back and interviewing people who are still around or finding stuff in the archives from friends who went to college with both of them, all kinds of stuff. And what you mentioned, her ability to analyze the poetry itself. I mean, there's entire sections of this book, I feel like, that could have been a book in and of Mm themselves. Just the analysis of her poetry, which is just masterful. So, oh, man. She's teaching me how to be a better reader. While I'm reading this biography, I feel like I'm I'm getting equipped to not just to read Sylvia Plath's poetry a little better and, and give me some clarity on, on it or, or, or clarity is probably even the wrong word, but help me explore the riches of it better. Mm. But just in general, as she's going through it, I'm like, wow, I, this is great thinking behind all of this. Absolutely. No, I'm going to pick up a physical copy because this is one I want on my shelves. It's amazing. It'll take a big dent out of my shelves because it's like 1200 down some shelves. (laughs) Yeah, but I would recommend to anybody out there either to pick it up and or to to take a swing at the audio because the audio book is masterfully done as well. It's been one of those just immersive, wonderful experiences. I mean, wonderful, I say. It's a lot of dark subject matter and it's a very tragic story. Mm-hmm. But just the humanity and her masterful approach to all of it has made it, uh, man, an amazing reading experience for me that could, it very easily could have ended up in my top five or maybe even my top breed. Honestly, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it was close. It was, it's definitely a contender for my number one. We'll get to that in a moment, but I'm glad we were able to have this conversation still, even though you haven't quite finished it. Yeah. Um, that, that is great. And yeah, it, like I say, pretty much back when I started it, I knew that it was 
going to make the list. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad to have, to have come through for you on oh, absolutely. that one. <laughs> no, that one, I'm not just that one, but yeah, that one for sure. All right. Let's get back to some of our um, friends and, and hear what they have to say. Uh, you good for that? I'm good. Let's hear from them. This is wonderful. All right. Uh, first, let's listen to a, a kind of a long one, but I, I don't care. This is the year. This is the time for indulgences. Exactly. And not only that, but it's just so nice to hear Anthony. As, as you know, I've had an opportunity to meet up with Anthony a couple of times this year. He doesn't live that far away from me. And uh, it's so nice to, to have him participate and send us his book of the year. Anthony, we're excited to hear from you. Hello, Paul and Trevor. Thank you for the invitation. Hello, dear listeners. The influence of the many gifted readers I'm awestruck I'm able to interact with online and this year for the first time a number of times in person started to take hold in a greater way this year. Despite parenting young children, despite the particulars of my nervous system and my everyday life, despite attempting to finish my own book, I read more and more widely than I have perhaps ever in my life. I want to give credit, though, to the younger self, whose habits are still a part of me. And through him, maybe give credit to you listening. Reading a few pages, uh, considering a line at length, figuring out what you want to read next, talking to others about books, listening to literature podcasts, meeting a couple friends to browse titles at a bookstore, one who drove an hour to get there, one, a Canadian who flew in from Arkansas. Those things not only all count, but are worth celebrating. And they're fun. Before I say the book I'd like to highlight, I want to briefly mention another book I feel forever tied to after a surprisingly viral tweet sent the book into three printings. Indeterminate Inflorescence, a book of aphorisms about poetics by Lee Young Bach, translated from Korean by Anton Herr and published by Sublunary Editions is a remarkable book that I would recommend to any lover of literature. My favorite living writer, one who, along with the deceased writers Proust and Virginia Woolf, I floundered a ride in the wake of, is Christina Tudor Sideri. Many will know her from her poetic tweets where she often quotes Blanchot, Salon, Duras, Canetti, Sisu, Rilke, Sioran, and others. All of her books, whether categorized somewhat arbitrarily as fiction or nonfiction, feel like one book to me. And when I've told her that, she's told me that's true. They're all part of the book she will never write. Um, like Alain Sisu or Roland Barthes, if those writers took a half step toward the materiality of bodies in the world, Tudor Sideri writes in prose that braids poetry and philosophy about absence and presence, life and death, abstraction and the body, memory and forgetting, language and silence, interweaving those binaries into aporia that, like dreams that evaporate in the moment one tries to hold them, leave my head spinning toward everything I can't imagine. This year, Aradam Press published her If I Had Not Seen Their Sleeping Faces, subtitled Fragments on Death after Anna de Noel, 
99 pages and fewer fragments, a small number just extending onto a second page. Each fragment takes a line from the French writer Anna de Noel's work as a starting point to reach toward the unreachable, unspeakable language of the dead. Those first lines are then gathered in the back into a table of contents of sorts that become a poem. Happy holidays, Trevor and Paul, and happy new year. The way you both move through the world make the world bigger, more open, and more kind, both in general and for me personally. And happy holidays and happy new year to you listening. You are beautiful beyond your own conception. The world is better for your presence. May the new year bring greater peace and light. All right. Thanks, Anthony. And we we, we have another um, request, though, Paul, is for all of us to get together. Yeah. That, that means we either need to come over to Denver to see you or or you got to make a swing over here to, to Utah. But we'll, we'll get there someday. It needs to happen. Like he said, it's been one of those years where I haven't had as many opportunities to meet online friends it sounds like as, as he has, but it's been amazing to just, anytime you get a chance to meet somebody, I got to meet Kim McNeil earlier this year in person, which was just as wonderful as you would think mm-hmm. it would be. She's such an amazing person. And I look forward to, I would love to swing by and see you and Anthony and many other people out there. This is a fun trend. I like this. <laughs> well, in the next, the next one we'll, we'll have, um, uh, give his audio submission is probably of all of them, the one that you and I have known the longest. Yeah. Would you say? I think so. This is our great friend, Stuart, you know, known him from pre blogging days on Palimpsest. And the, the thing that's fun is, you know, we, we've seen pictures. They used to do the big day out for mm-hmm. Palimpsest where a lot of them would get together over in the UK and I never was able to go. So I've never <sighs> talked with Stuart or, or, you know, um, heard his voice, but, when he sent over his his or his audio, my wife was there as I was playing it, and she said, "Oh, Trevor, you can't play that. Everyone will want Stuart to take your place." <laughs> That's right. I think he could take both of our places very easily. <laughs> so, Stuart, with your with your lovely accent and your your for, you know beyond that, just your great ability to talk about books and uh, all of that, uh, I'm excited about all these books that you mentioned. Um, well, I don't want to spoil it. Listeners, here is Stuart. <laughs> Innocentian by Martin McInnes was a real surprise. I approached it with little knowledge of its storyline and found myself swept up in its ever-expanding scale as we travel from the lowest point on Earth to the even deeper realms of space. It was an ecological sci-fi that inspires awe, happily serving up a cocktail of near-future scientific ideas, cosmic concerns and domestic drama. It's a book that felt like it had its own gravitational pull, only really letting me go when I turned that final page. A shout out also to a 2013 reissue from Valancourt Books called The Day the Call Came by Thomas Hind. It was originally published in 1964 and is a slim work of suburban sunshine and paranoia with a mounting sense of dread. It follows a family man activated as if he's some sort of sleeper cell awaiting instructions by the titular call, a note found in an envelope simply saying, Stand by. His mission, if there is one, is unclear, and so he he attempts to interpret everything as an instruction and eyes everyone around him with suspicion. It's a first-person narrative and the inside of this guy's head is a melting pot of conspiracy and paranoia, delivered with a surface-level sanity, leaving us never quite knowing what's going on, or worse, what he's thinking, even when he's telling us. 
Those two aside, I feel my current read, The Peasants by Władysław Raymond, and translated by Anna Zarenko, is making a last-minute dash for the top spot. It's a Polish national epic tracking changes in rural life over the course of a year. For now, I'm only a fifth of the way through, but I'm enjoying its sense of scale and Raymond's observation of nature and peasant life as the seasons progress. But, at 900 pages and little time left in the year, it may well have a spot in my top books of 2024 instead. All right. All right, Paul. Um, I guess maybe start thinking about that retirement, you know, if Stuart, if Stuart's interested in coming on and taking our, our place. That's right. They know. don't want to hear from us after hearing from him. They're like, oh, <laughs> you guys, his voices are terrible. Yeah, I, I would agree. Yeah, me too. <laughs> oh. No, but I want to just say that the book he mentioned, The Peasants, um, mm-hmm. that one is one that, speaking of huge books, that one got a lot of buzz. I don't know if it was a year ago or so. And I ended up buying that yeah. from Stephen Sparks, the, the, our friend, the bookseller. Yeah. And yeah. When you to- did that, he, he sent it. Well, he didn't send it to me. I then reached out and got it too. Cause I couldn't yeah. be out of the, you know, out of that uh, little I, benefit. <laughs> I know exactly. No, I, despite that, I've not yet read it, but hearing Stuart talk about it kind of reinvigorated my desire to pick it up soon. Cause it sounds so amazing. So I'm glad he mentioned that one. Yeah. And thanks, Stephen. I, I, like, I don't know how that was available. You know, it's the UK Penguin copy, but he, when I reached out to him, he said he had a couple more copies. Yeah. So I just, you know, made kind of a normal order somehow. I can't, I can't quite remember how it came I down. I can't but either, but I'm strike really while the iron's hot, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yo. All right. Next one, we kind of have a little, uh, 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 two folks, one that submitted through um, you know, just just wrote. Actually, she tweeted us or mm-hmm. xed us. I don't know anymore. I don't <laughs> care either. Um, Rebecca Hussey, uh, our good friend um, from One Bright Book, but even predating all of that mm-hmm. and predating Noops and the Gripes podcast, um, she has a uh, best book of the year that will become even more relevant here in just a moment when we hear from Kim McNeil. But uh, Rebecca, her her tweet said. Kate Briggs, the long form with an exclamation point. Its preoccupations are my preoccupations. Motherhood, consciousness, relationships, novel theory, narrative form, the experience of reading. It's a warm, generous, thoughtful, endlessly rich and fascinating book. And maybe, maybe before we even kind of talk too much, let's let Kim McNeil jump in here and you know, give her book of the year, probably, probably kind of spoiled it as I, you know, can combine the two, but go ahead, (laughs) go ahead, go ahead, Kim. (laughs) Paul and Trevor. Hi, this is Kim McNeil. 2023 was such a great reading year and every book leaves a different kind of impression. So it's always difficult to choose favorites. The book that left the deepest, most inspired impression was the long form by Kate Briggs published by Dorothy project in October. It challenges what a novel can be, and I found it to be a perfect balance of fiction and essay, coalescing into something even more interesting and vital. It definitely hit a sweet spot for me, and Rebecca Hussey and I are going to be collaborating on a special slow read of the book next year so we can engage with it at a deeper level. So stay tuned on Twitter for details. I'd be remiss, though, to not also mention my favorite book of NYRB Women 23. There were so many that stood out. But our 23rd book, Basic Black with Pearls, was the most exciting to me. It was Helen Weinswig's second book and was originally published in 1981 when she was 66 years old. 
It's enigmatic and drifts between reality and a kind of dream state, between past and present, sanity and madness, dissatisfaction and hope. As a prolific reader, she said in a 1990 interview, one of the things I had to learn after reading all this male fiction was what do I as a woman feel like? All the literary forms were men's. All the philosophies were men's philosophies. I had to translate these forms into the female. She definitely achieved this, and the book is spellbinding. I'm excited to hear about your favorite reads for the year. Thanks for all the wonderful listening you both have gifted us with. All right. So exciting to... to to see them chatting and on Twitter and, and, and on Instagram about doing a long read of Kate Briggs over 2024. Yes. I, I haven't dive, you know, I haven't put my, put my name in the hat for mm-hmm. that. Not because I don't want to, but I feel like there are too many hats with my name in them right now. <laughs> right. I'm struggling but with the same thing. This one is very tempting. I, I don't, I've not read anything by Kate Briggs. But, you know, what they say about the long form here makes me want to. And what they've said in the past, you know, you've mentioned this little art. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really would like to, and I would love to, to participate with them um, just in general. But I've had the uh, same debate. And actually, I just finished reading the long form um, a week or two ago. And I want to echo, first of all, everything that they say about it. Again, touching on that motherhood theme, I, I've been amazed by the literature that's coming out about motherhood and it's not always new motherhood. Sometimes it's, you know, later on and like, um, you know, there, there's other versions, but in particular this one and um, Kate Zambrino talks about new motherhood, but yeah, just like you said, I, I am very tempted, even though I've just finished reading it to potentially join in for somebody else who hasn't read the book, I would highly recommend that they jump in on this. And even if you have, it sounds like it'd be a great opportunity to go back and do that slow, slow reading that we've talked about, which is so powerful. So that's what an exciting yeah. project that is. Yeah, 2024, not so scary when you've no. got so many things to look forward to. Right. All right. Another uh, listener joined us on our open letter um, episode, uh, Ron Restrepo. Uh, Ron, not too surprised at the, who published the book that you you were bringing up here. Yes. But uh, why don't we let you? Why don't we let you talk about it for a moment? Greetings, Ron Restrepo here, sending holiday wishes from Houston to my Twitter friends, Trevor and Paul, and fellow Mooks and Gripes fanatics. After making my list and checking it twice, I narrowed down my favorites list this year to three translated fiction books, The Young Bride from Italy, Whale from South Korea, and my favorite, Not Even the Dead from Spain. Even though I was not familiar with the author, Juan Gomez Barcena, I picked it up because it came from a mutually favorite publisher, Open Letter, and a favorite translator, Katie Whittemore. This book checked all my boxes. It is structurally satisfying and engaging on a sentence level. It shares a doppelganger theme reminiscent of septology as Juan the innkeeper and former conquistador living near Puebla, Mexico in the early 16th century, is retained by the Spanish crown to locate and return with Juan the Indian, dead or alive, and his valued but mysterious book. The slow, finely detailed journey north covers not only the land to the border, but also 500 years of Mexican history. 
using the transformation of the enigmatic Juan the Indian as a mirror of that history. From indigenous Aztec influences, through colonialism and Catholicism, through independence in all its guises, right up to the Trumpian border. I knew it would be a favorite as I kept asking myself, how does he do it? The image I retain is a kaleidoscope, as each stage of the passage north to locate Juan the Indian is like a twist of the tube, showing another delightful image. Reviews mention homages to McCarthy, Conrad, and Bolaño, but for me the book is a unique portrayal of the epic sweep of history and the quotidian life of those living it. I strongly recommend it. First off, nice to hear from you again, Ron. Yes. Um, everybody that, that's on here would love to, to just get together in a big room and just have a nice chat with you. Imagine how long that would go. <laughs> I said this, I think, when we had Ron on, but I just wanted to give him a quick shout out. He is one of the smartest and most interesting readers, I think, that I've ever met. Just keeping track of him online and chatting with him. He, his eye for, or for good books and for good publishers is just impeccable. So anytime that he recommends a book, whether it's on my radar or not, it instantly gets a big boost on my on my list. So, um, not even the dead in particular, I own that one. Yeah, um, me, me too. I'm oh, kind of kicking myself that I haven't started it yet. I know hearing his description, I'm like, that sounds amazing. But it, even the other two whale is another one that I own and haven't read. And then the young bride is one that it wasn't one that I own yet. But like I said, now that he mentioned it, it's going on the list. So thank you, Ron. <laughs> oh, all right. And, and speaking of more books that, you know, again, I've heard I've heard from our next submission um, about this book, and have often put it in my like to 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 look into and to buy list. But this this might solidify it. But why don't you go ahead and read from our our next friend who also joined us recently on an episode did, of Victorian yeah. literature episode? Oh, I loved it. <laughs> I know I did too. Yeah, it's, Rowan Mateson, like you said, she joined us for a wonderful discussion on Victorian literature, and she is just an absolute expert in that field and has so many fascinating things to say about it and many other forms of literature. And she says, the best book I read this year is my friend John Cotter's memoir, Losing Music, a frank, personal, and often heartbreaking account of his experience with Meniere's disease, a syndrome which causes debilitating vertigo and loss of hearing. Music had always been really important to John, and he writes movingly about how devastating it was to know he was losing it. One night, his hearing comes back for a while. Quote, I, know, I knew exactly how to proceed, John says. Carefully, I laid myself down on my childhood bed and set in place an expensive pair of Audio-Technica headphones I've been saving against the day. Jaska Heifetz, back in 1952 in Hollywood, playing box partitas for solo violin. It's vertiginous, sinister, and somehow a kind of duet, the way he plays it, a dance at the edge of a cliff. Rowan says, it's impossible not to imagine what you yourself might choose to listen to if you might never have another chance to hear music. Losing Music began as an essay for Open Letters Monthly, where both John and I were editors. I feel very proud to have had a small part in it. Wow, that sounds amazing. I have thought often about like if you were losing your eyesight as a reader, what that would be like and the panic that that would induce, but to think of the same type of thing around hearing and music is equally heartbreaking. So that one, again, another one that's just jumping onto my list. That sounds tragic and also really powerful. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Oh, thank you, Rowan, for, for joining us on the Victorian uh, literature episode. Uh, 
definitely a listener favorite that has, has carried on, you mm-hmm. know, over the last uh, several months. Um, and, and for the submission too, again, you, you, I saw some of your posts and, and uh, tweets about this a while back and uh, I'm glad that you brought it up again because it is one I want to get to. All right. One more, Paul, and then we'll do our number ones. Okay. But, uh, this one is, uh, well, why don't, why don't you go ahead and say who, who submitted this one? Yeah, from another great friend and, and great poet, Alina Stefanescu. Um, it's always been great to hear from her. She has a wonderful online presence. She's she's witty, but she's also just one of the most unique and magical people, I think, that I follow on Twitter every time she tweets. I, I just am fascinated by her mind. I love the way that she approaches life and literature. So let's hear from Alina. Alina Stefanescu here. My favorite book surprised me, and I should say one of my favorites because there were many, but this is definitely among them. It is a book that was put out by a small European press, Hem Press, and Hem really, really brings innovative and risky titles to the table. So I was intrigued by that. But James Tad Adcox wrote Denmark Variations. And the conceit is sort of to restage Hamlet in variations with instructions on how to do that. The employment of the counterfactual here feels really voluminous and playful, but it also speaks to something I crave in literature right now, namely the exploration of alternative futures and any sort of engagement of infinite possibility rather than a teleological approach. And I've sort of been done with teleology for a while now, but um, this, and maybe it's political, maybe there's political despair involved, but it also feels increasingly robotic and unhelpful, unvisionary, useless, part of what Mark Fisher described as capitalist realism. So another way to say that is I'm not really interested in what you swear happened as a fact, I'm more interested in how radically you perceived this so-called fact. I want to look beneath the skirts of the monuments. And Adcox does this. I'll just read the beginning, the instructions he gives for the reader. Each of the following variations may be applied singly or in combination to any given performance of Hamlet. Once a variation or set of variations has been chosen, however, the corresponding instructions should be followed as strictly as possible. Some of the variations that follow may appear to be impossible, whether for legal, moral, or pragmatic reasons. In such cases, cast and director must ask, do we will the impossible? He really sets up this book as an exercise in imagination, and he asks me to think, to bring the entirety of my cerebral and fantasy-generating apparatus to the page and to the scenarios. I'm seduced by the way Adcox engages the reader, as well as the implications of these short pieces. It was love at first read for me, and I look forward to more from this author. Thanks so much, Alina. By the way, I, I loved when she sent it to us, how she followed up with that on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I did too. Yeah, a, a very, uh, it was a monocled, uh, bespectacled, I guess, fellow who she said that's kind of how she felt when she was posting it. But I mean, she has just one of those minds, like I said, she is just so brilliant and smart. And the way that she will talk about a book that I haven't read or a book that I have read and just see it from a completely different perspective. I I think it's just one of those things that 
again, we talk about the power of our online communities, but she's one of those people that I'm so happy to have been able to cross her path. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks to everybody who, who, uh, participated this year with us we we hope to continue this tradition for a long time and hear from all of you you know who have participated already in the past and from many more over the years to come but uh you know let's let's go ahead now and get to our number ones listeners before we get on to our number one pick we got another submission after we had recorded this from our good friend damian kelleher And we both wanted to just inject it here. I hope you don't mind. Damien, thanks for sending it. And here we go. Hello, everyone. My name is Damien Kelleher. I am a book liker and frequent Twitter poster. I enjoy books and cooking and um, posting about both of those things. 2023 for me was a year when I went back to old favourites and I I, I tried to understand whether writers I admired when I was younger, um, if they were still able to speak to me now that I'm a man with children, with a wife, a good career and a yapping dog. Did they still have something to say to me now um, if they did when I was in my 20s and late 20s and early 30s? So first up for me, I suppose, is uh, Rabbit is Rich by John Updike. I think, I think John Updike captures an America that I hope has faded. It's a racist America, a sexist America, a stubbornly white and middle-class America, unaware of its privilege, and yet, and yet, beautifully written, beautifully observed, beautifully, beautifully written. Uh, John Updike is able to do amazing things with words and sentences, but in the service of what? Uh, you know, what, what is he doing with these beautiful words? You know, what does it mean to write so well about a faded section of America? If Harry Rabbit Angstrom was alive today, he would be a Trump supporter. He would. Does that make him a bad American? I'm not sure. Possibly yes. For John Updike? No, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think so. Um, Updike would see him as a beautiful man with a wonderful inner life. And his inner life unfurls and unfurls and unfurls. Uh, it's endless as long as you're able to keep up with the looking and the seeing and the wondering and the observing that he's doing. But in service of what? In service of what? Uh, the second writer that I returned to was uh, Juan Gotisolo, a Spanish writer. He um, was exiled from his country of birth and he wrote furiously from Marrakesh and other places. I read uh, Blind Rider, Exiled from Almost Everywhere, and The Garden of Secrets. Um, he died in 2017, and I think he never really quite uh, received the accolades and recognition that he should have in English. Um, he writes about demons, he writes about art, literature, suffering, death. Um, he writes quite uh, extravagantly and fondly about the tears of men trapped in metal cages, suspended in the eternal flames of hell. That is not me being grand and um, making things up. That is a sentence you'll see in some of his work. Uh, He's unflinching in his criticism of power, whether it is the systemic corroded power of politics and wealth or the shiny, shallow power of technology and fame. He writes and he writes and he writes and nobody is spared and nothing is sacred and all is suffering and all is misery. And yet... There is an exuberant beauty to his writing. There is a special excitement to what he's saying. 
It might all be terrible. It might all be violent and horrible and miserable and nasty and dark. But there is, I guess, a positive excitement about the way it is written that makes it in, in, in some strange way hopeful because what it comes back to is, I suppose, the meaning and the power of literature and what it can do. And now we'll get to our number one. My number one, you know, Trevor, I've done such a good job of not cheating this year that I think you're probably a little bit disappointed in me. So I saved my cheat for the last. Um, my Here's favorite... my, here are all of my favorite books of the year. Exactly. <laughs> Brace yourself. Here I go. No, um, it's a kind of a combo. It's The Passenger and Stella Maris by Cormac McCarthy. Um, so yes, my top book of the year is actually a little bit of a cheat. It's technically two books, but I feel very justified in this decision because these books are just so closely entwined. Um, as a pair, they combine to create my best reading experience of the year. Even though I read them clear back at the very beginning of the year, they just made an impression on me that lasted you know, the entire year. So we've talked about them a fair amount earlier in the year um, as they were the first two books that we've seen from Cormac McCarthy in more than 15 years. And sadly he has since passed and just what an amazing way to go out. Um, as I said at the time, I was incredibly excited when I heard they were coming up, but that thing we always talk about, also a little nervous, knowing that he was getting towards the tail end of his career and probably his life. Um, and also just that passage of time between can sometimes make you a little wary that there was a struggle with the books or, you know, whatever the case may be. But um, boy, they just met and exceeded my expectations. Um, they're both technically standalone novels, but mine came in a nice little you know, box set. So again, you know, I'm just justifying the fact that I'm including two books here, <laughs> but the, I, you, I will, I will just tell you now, totally fair, not okay. even a cheat. I, I wouldn't have even batted an eye had you not, okay. you know, preface well, thank it you. that way, just so you know. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, honestly, they probably could have been combined into one book, but they're technically standalone novels. They do take place in the same universe and they have the same characters. So the passenger is mostly set in Louisiana during the 1980s. And it tells the story of a brother and sister named Bobby and Alicia Western. So Bobby is the former race car driver who now works as a salvage diver. And as we spend mostly our time in his head during this book, we quickly gather that he's very haunted and damaged by his past, including the death of his sister and also memories of his father, who was a physicist who was involved in helping Oppenheimer develop the atomic bomb, which is one of the big themes of both of these books. Um, and it's really interesting. A big part of The Passenger reads almost like a mystery or a noir novel as Bobby explores this mysterious plane crash on, in the water. And then he starts to be followed and questioned by this strange group of mysterious men. And so we just spend a lot of time with him as he's becoming increasingly harried and chased and paranoid, but again, also haunted by these memories of his family. And then these feelings are exacerbated as he rereads letters that his sister left behind. And so we start to get to know her a little bit through his perspective, learn more of her story and gain insights into kind of her troubled mental state as she writes about these groups of imaginary beings that appear to her. She refers to them as cohorts. So, you know, there's clearly a lot going on in these books and I don't want to give too much away, but I'll just say that I think there's something for everyone really like there's mystery and suspense and kind of this noir element but as you would expect from Cormac, there's also just some absolutely stunning and beautiful writing um, but then also there's these really fascinating sections focusing on math and science, which I know were two of McCarthy's major fascinations as he lived on that kind of like genius compound, you know, in New Mexico. And he spent a lot of time rather 
than with novelists. He spent a lot of time with mathematicians and scientists, and that really shows in this book. Um, so a lot of those sections where he is dealing with with science, in some ways, I thought there were some echoes of Benjamin Labatut's When We Cease to Understand the World, because he delves into the scientists, but also sometimes the, the consequences of these great discoveries that we've made. So for example, here's a section where he's talking about the aftermath of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And he says, those who survived would often remember this horror with a certain aesthetic to them. In that mycodial phantom blooming in the dawn like an evil lotus, and in the melting of solids not heretofore known to do so, stood a truth that would silence poetry a thousand years. Like an immense bladder, they would say, like some sea thing, wobbling slightly on the near horizon. Then the unspeakable noise. They saw birds in the dawn sky ignite and explode soundlessly and fall in long arcs earthward like burning party favors. So, you know, whew, it's Cormac. I mean, it's it's Old Testament, it's poetic, it's dark at times. But the f- interesting thing is there's there's sections like that that seem like the kind of the stereotypical Cormac of the Old Testament poetical style. But there's a lot of this book that's written in a fairly straightforward manner that I think is probably more in common with something like No Country for Old Men, where it's more of a thriller. So just, I know I'm going on and on, but after I finished The Passenger, I just jumped immediately into Stella Maris. And I would highly, highly recommend that to anybody who is considering doing this, because again, they, they are just so encapsulated with each other. Um, and I think this book just further highlights his genius because it shows off a completely different side of his range. It's a pretty slim book and it consists purely of just dialogue, you know, in true Cormac style, their punctuation marks and dialogue tags are few and far between, but the entire book is made up of extended conversations between the sister, Alicia, and a male psychiatrist at a mental institution. And so in The Passenger, we get a lot of her through the eyes of her brother. But then in this one, it jumps back 10 years before the events of The Passenger, and we get to actually spend time with her. Um, and we find out that she is staying in this um, mental institution called Stella Maris, and she's diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic, but also is a true genius. And so the conversations between these two just cover some absolutely fascinating grounds of math and science, but also touching on those imaginary figures that keep popping up in her mind, um, who are just bizarre, but also absolutely fascinating. So, you know, I found a review on NPR that I thought summed up the relationship, and I'll just close with that between these two books. And it says, the passenger flirts with not being a traditional novel and succeeds. Stella Maris doesn't care about not being a novel, and it shines because of it. The former is dark and mysterious like a night out on the bayou. The latter, a spiritual sister presented as a coda to be published a month later, is wild, profoundly sinister, and more a philosophical exploration and celebration of math mysticism and the possibilities and perhaps unknowability of quantum mechanics than a novel. Taken together, these two novels are a floating signifier that refuses to be pinned down. They are also great additions to McCarthy's already outstanding oeuvre. And so I thought, you know, I couldn't say it any better than that. I just could not think of a more powerful way for him to close out his career and his life. I'm so thrilled that these turned out to be, in my opinion, masterpieces because he's one of my favorite authors. And I think the fact that he could go out like this, just, you know, I think he will go down as an all time great. So that's my top books of the year. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. I'm glad to hear it. I still haven't read those yet. I think part of the reason I don't have Stella Maris yet mm. knop actually sent me the the passenger but not stella maris oh okay <laughs> and so i need to go and get it and i think i've when you said you should read them both pretty close together i i thought 
I need to do that. And that has, I think, turned into a little bit of an artificial uh, hurdle that mm-hmm. I need to just uh, jump over and, and dive in. Well, not that I want to add to your book budget deficit, but if you ever decided to do it, there is an edition that I have that I think it's the UK edition and they came in this oh. box set and they're like this red and blue copy and they're just yeah. absolutely gorgeous. Um, not that you really pretty too. Yeah. And those. I'll just quickly say my wife has been going through and rereading or not rereading. She's been reading for the first time, a lot of Cormac's stuff over the past year or so. And it's been so fun to kind of experience it that with her. And I'm speaking of adding more things to 2024. I'm thinking about going back to the beginning and reading through his entire collected works, you know, not over the course of a year, but that could take me one year, two years, five mm-hmm. years. I don't know, but uh, I don't know. Just, I, I was already thinking of that. And then with him passing this year, it just seemed like a good time to maybe just go back and start at the beginning. So stay tuned for more on that. <laughs> well, my number one will also bleed into future product projects and not surprising to you. you, you this won't come as a surprise to anybody. Uh, but my, my favorite book that I read this year is The Last Chronicle of Barset by Anthony Trollope. Yes. I, I just love this whole series of books. But this isn't my favorite just because it kind of, you know, to represent all of them. Mm-hmm. I really loved this book. It, it is a culmination of a bunch of characters and everything that's you know, we've seen, we, we, they come back together in this story in different ways. You know, maybe somebody that we met in, in Barchester Towers, for example, you know, the, the bishop and, and his wife, uh, Mrs. Proudy are big, big, big characters in this book, uh, maybe even bigger than they were in Barchester Towers. Um, I think you'll, you'll get to know them soon, Paul, once you start that book, they, they come, they come very early. Nice. to the town <laughs> um but the the last chronicle of barca i just loved the the whole story i loved everything that was going on in it um and it, the the premise that the 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 action as it goes forward i mean it starts on page one that the very first chapter is called how did he get it and this is talking about the reverend josiah crawley he is the curate of hogglestock so hello, Thomas, you know, <laughs> our friend Hogglestock. Um, he's the, the perpetual curate of Hogglestock, uh, very poor, and he has a big family, seven, eight children. I can't remember exactly exactly the number, but uh, he doesn't have very much money. And he's a bit of a sad sack, you know, kind of one of these that, oh, I just a bit of a failure and da, 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 you know, and, and when we met him in an earlier book, he was that way. And I thought, Oh, he's like one of the main characters in a book coming up. I wonder if I'll like it. But he has, uh, he's in a bit of hot water as the book begins because there was a 20 pound note that has been going around town. And the butcher says that it was stolen from him. And when they trace things back, it, it was cashed by Josiah Crawley. So did he steal this 20 pound note? You know, how did it happen? And I just love how it begins. It's got these two two people, um, Mary Walker and her son John, are talking. And she says, I can never bring myself to believe it, John, said Miss Walker. You'll have to bring yourself to believe it, said John, without taking his eyes from his book. A clergyman, and such a clergyman too. I don't see that that has anything to do with it. As he now spoke, John did take his eyes off the book. Why should not a clergyman turn thief as well as anybody else? 
You girls always seem to forget that clergymen are only men, after all. Their conduct is likely to be better than that of other men, I think. I deny it utterly, said John Walker. I'll undertake to say that at this moment there are more clergymen in debt in Barsetshire than there are either lawyers or doctors. This man has always been in debt. Since he has been in the county, I don't think he has ever been able to show his face in the high street of Silverbridge. John, that is saying more than you have a right to say. (laughs) So just a great little introduction to these characters and such. Um, And you follow that through. the, the story of the note. Um, but there is more to this. And, and maybe my favorite part of the storyline is, uh, harkens back to someone you do know, the Archdeacon Grantley, mm. uh, who's one of the main characters in The Warden. Yeah. Um, his son, Henry, wants to marry Mr. Crawley's daughter, Grace. And the Archdeacon is like, nope, we're not getting embroiled with that scandal. You know, not only are they poor and all this, you know, yada, 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 but you can't marry somebody who is essentially a lost soul and, you know, embroil yourself with, with all this. So he threatens to disinherit his son and his son, you know, they push back and forth, push back and forth. And if you'll allow it, I'm going to read kind of a, a, a rather lengthy um, part from a chapter that's a, a lot later in the book. And this is the Archdeacon Grantly starting to really wonder about the effects of his anger and his, his wrath, which will, the word will come up a lot mm. um, with his son. It says, I wonder whether anyone will read these pages who has never known anything of the bitterness of a family quarrel. If so, I shall have a reader very fortunate or else very cold-blooded. It would be wrong to say that love produces quarrels, but love does produce those intimate relations of which quarreling is too often one of the consequences, one of the consequences which frequently seem to be so natural and sometimes seem to be unavoidable. One brother rebukes the other, and what brothers ever lived together between whom there was no such rebuking? Then some warm word is said and misunderstood, and hotter words follow, and there is a quarrel. The husband tyrannizes, knowing that it is his duty to direct, and the wife disobeys, or only partially obeys, thinking that a little independence will become her, and so there is a quarrel. The father, anxious only for his son's good, looks into that son's future with other eyes than those of his son himself, and so there is a quarrel. They come very easily, these quarrels, but the quittance of them is sometimes terribly difficult. Much of thought is necessary before the angry man can remember that he too, in part, may have been wrong, and any attempt at such thinking is almost beyond the power of him who is carefully nursing his wrath, lest it cool. But the nursing of such quarreling kills all happiness. The very man who is nursing his wrath, lest it cool, his wrath against one whom he loves perhaps the best of all whom it has been given him to love, is himself wretched as long as it lasts. His anger poisons every pleasure of his life. He is sullen at his meals and cannot understand his book as he turns its pages. His work, let it be what it may, is ill done. He is full of his quarrel, nursing it. He is telling himself how much he has loved that wicked one, how many have been his sacrifices for that wicked one, and that now that wicked one is repaying him simply with wickedness. And yet the wicked one is at that very moment dearer to him than ever. If that wicked one could only be forgiven, how sweet would be the world again. 
and yet he nurses his wrath. <laughs> wow, that's so good. <sighs> it's it's filled with little things like that, and Trollope is always really good at at making all of these characters very comprehensible and relatable and understandable to us today. Uh, you know that stuff there. I, I love that he he's able to articulate so much in that sentence or in that passage. Just the the thing about you know this anger, these quarrels are easy to step into and very hard to to get out of. But he says it so much better than that. You know, right. he's got this little little um, melodic uh, you know way of of writing, and the part where it's like, and, and this may be the someone he loves as much as anybody else you know, that has been given him to love. And it it shows the, the struggles of these characters, their inner turmoil of, I'm just looking out for my son, but looking out for him with eyes other than those of his son and how that can create such a dramatic, you know, you know, time in the book itself, but time with these characters where they're just in agony mm-hmm. uh, because they, they do love, but maybe they're not loving in quite quite the right way Hmm. and maybe their ways of trying to express that love and concern can be more detrimental that actually is is a theme in this book it is not just the archdeacon grantley who is experiencing that um that struggle um and again trollope is so good at being able to pull back pull us back and say that what this person is doing is pretty horrible but the reason they're doing it it's actually because of some pretty remarkable love or humanness. They're just misguided. They're just wrong. They're wrong and it's dangerous and it's, it can be horrible and it can be, you know, tragic. And it is tragic at times in this, in this book. Um, uh, this is, this is a book that is very happy in many ways, but also very sad. Um, uh, it, another one of those books that, you know, if I think about it too much, just, you know, these are like my friends and family and I care for them a lot and realizing some of the things they're going through is, is can be kind of emotional. So yeah, uh, looking forward to next year because in in January I am starting finally, I've been saying it for a while, but we got rebooted on the, on the, the, the reading group that I'm a part of to begin the Palliser series in January. So that's when I move on to, can you forgive her? (laughs) The first book of that set oh i was hoping i i I thought that that would probably have a good shot at making the top of your list but i was hoping that it didn't somehow just fall off of your top 10 completely i didn't think so but um yeah it's the third year in a row we've done this and it's the third year in a row that i've had one of his books pretty close to the top if not the top (laughs) no i love that I, i i love everything about that including the fact that it just shows the power of of when you get into one of these long series or you find an author, how it can just turn into not just one month or one year, but it can become like a lifelong mm-hmm. thing. And I, I think that's a good encapsulation of it. So, ah, oh, that's a wonderful way to, to close it out. And I have only read the warden so far. I keep saying that, but um, like I said, this wasn't a year where I necessarily got a chance to read <laughs> as many classics, but when I get back to it in 2024, that one is very high on my list to kind of keep things going. So. All right. Well, I I will uh, I will hold you to it just as as harshly as you have treated me for not quite getting to David Copperfield, which is <laughs> not harshly at all. I know you'll get to it when you're able to, and um, can only hope for the best when you do get there. So <laughs> yeah, for sure, it's a lot of fun stuff to look forward to, as always. 
So, all right. Well, Paul, I hope you're having a wonderful holiday season as this goes live. You know, we'll, we'll be chatting online and all of that. But mm-hmm. otherwise, we'll be back in 2024 with uh, many more episodes planned, special guests, a lot of books and happy reading. And so thanks, everybody, for being a, a part of these episodes this year and for, for listening. And yeah. Paul, thank you for joining me on this uh, this journey. It has been wonderful. Absolutely. I want to echo the same thing. Thank you so much. It's been one of my favorite things to have happened to me in the last couple of years. I love every minute of it. And I'm so appreciative of you and of all the the listeners out there. It's been just absolutely a beautiful community to build. And I look forward to 2024. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can follow Trevor at Mooks and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon. If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month helps and is deeply appreciated. You can become a Patreon at patreon.com mooks. Until next time.